Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Swisspreneur. Today, I'm meeting Roman Gauss. Roman Gauss is the founder of Urban Farmers. He created this social impact business, and I want to chat with him what it actually takes to make a company like that happen, and maybe feeling to ride a dead horse sometimes. So let's go and chat with him. Hi, Roman. Hi. So good to be here. I'm super excited. I heard a lot about urban farmers and um, I was uh, actually at this uh, TEDx presentation in Zurich a couple years ago. So that was the first time I heard you speaking. So for me, actually a dream came true to be here in Basel. So yeah, tell us a little bit about where we are and what the, all these salads are here. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so welcome, welcome to farm, to the uh, UF001 uh, Lock Depot here in Basel. Uh, what you see here in the background is our uh, greenhouse with the hydroponic production of salads. You see here, maybe we can also uh, later show you. Uh, let's lift it up. Let's yeah, see. let's lift it. Okay. So here are the salads in this uh, substrate, which is uh, based in this hydroponic production. And here you see already the fish water. So everything is grown in the fish water that we're circulating back from the But no fish here. No fish here. Where are the fishes? The fish are back here in the, okay. in the fish tanks. And then okay. we recirculate the water back to the plants where the, they, they take up the nutrients through the roots and then clear the water and bring it back to the fish. Awesome. So it's a, it's a closed loop system between fish and plants on a on so, a roof of an industrial building. So the plants are feeding the fish and the fish are, fe are feeding the plants? The fish are feeding the plants and the plants are taking the nutrients and clearing the water for the fish. Okay, but then you still have to feed the fish? You do have to feed the fish, okay. exactly. And what do they eat? Um, fish, fish meal, so okay. regular fish meal that we are providing to the fish. Yep. Uh, we're using a plant-based fish meal. And then the, what the plants obviously need is uh, light. Yeah. That's yeah. why we're here in the greenhouse. Yeah. Exactly. The nutrients and the water. Nice. Yeah. And when did you open up here? We started this farm 2012. So pretty much after uh, like one and a half years after the TED talk, yeah. uh, we started to uh, build this project. And now we've been operating this farm for about four years. And uh, we have a second farm in operations since about uh, two years. Okay, yeah. so let's go back to that topic. I really would like to start with your early days, like where you grew up and, 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 and what you did. So uh, um, I heard that you studied at very well-known uh, universities, HSG, uh, you studied at the Babson College, you did something. So looking back at this time, how much is it actually now helping you to have this great education? Would you still do it the same or would you do it differently? Yeah, I would totally do it the same. I mean, I always wanted to go to HSG. Somehow I, I was already into commerce and entrepreneurial things. You know, I was already very entrepreneurial during my high school. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I started HSG, I ended up in a group of people called START, which was a student organization for entrepreneurship. And I think I always wanted to become an entrepreneur. For me, it was very clear that I didn't want to end up in corporate. Um, had a lot of exposure to entrepreneurs and then through Babson and also studying in Tel Aviv had a lot of exposure to uh, other types of entrepreneurial cultures. Um, so for me it was very clear that you know this would be something for me. And is it somehow inducted by your family or are they all entrepreneurs or are there yeah, some Yeah, my, my, my parents are entrepreneurial, not maybe classical entrepreneurs from that sense but uh, both my mom and my dad always did uh, entrepreneurial things. Um, my mom has been running several businesses in the past. So um, I would say the entrepreneurial trait is, is definitely in our family. And what I can definitely see is also the food 
food's been running through our lives constantly. Both me and my sister are, you know, very much in the food world. Or is she a chef, or what does she do uh, in food? My my sister is a food blogger. Oh. So uh, uh, right now, part-time food food blogger, but very much active in the area of uh, food, uh, writing about food, phot photography of food, and um, cooking. So everybody in the family is just it's just it's a a total foodie. Okay, very nice. Yeah. And um, then, like, uh, uh, starting your career, um, what was important for you? You didn't go immediately after your studies and went and said, okay, I'm becoming an entrepreneur. That's why, right. Why did you, why did you do t detours? Yes, true. Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, I think at that time, um, especially at high scale, I think you are, you know, thinking about entrepreneurship. But doing it is a whole different game. I think a lot of people were, at that time, really exploring uh, career options that made a lot of sense. And uh, of course, as a young graduate, you have many options. And for me, uh, going into a corporate where I could learn some of the things uh, I wanted to learn was a perfect, was a perfect first step. Uh, I started out uh, in consumer goods. I um, was hired by a company called Procter & Gamble in Geneva. So I was really like, you know, having a first start in a major corporation. Very, very defined processes, very rigid. Uh, basically, uh, you unlearn everything from they teach you in university <laughs> yeah. and they tell you this is, you know, this is now the real we hired you here. for your smarts, but now yeah. we're actually gonna give you the tools and everything yeah. you need to know to, to succeed here comes from us. So that was good. What did you do there? I was a brand manager. So I worked for a portfolio of uh, healthcare brands um, you know, the Richardson Wicks uh, soothing vapor rope and yeah. uh, the throat drops. Yeah. Uh, that was my portfolio of no brands. No shaving? No shaving cream, <laughs> no, no. But um, uh, P&G was really, was really exciting. I mean, it felt like, um, it felt a bit like um, being in school while earning a salary already. Nice. So the education and everything was really top notch. The exposure to, uh, let's say, to expertise in marketing and brand was fantastic. But I was also very much like, you know, crashing with different types with of culture. protocols. Yes, very much so. And uh, how was Geneva? Geneva was fantastic. I mean, it's a great, you know, a Swiss German guy ending up in Geneva, 50 meters to the lake. It's perfect. But you um, didn't stay. No, I didn't stay. No, I've, I think, I think after one and a half years, two years, it was very clear that I wouldn't be successful at PNG for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, that was made clear to so me did also. Did they send you or did you leave? <laughs> I think we left both in very good okay. terms. But it was good. It was it was good to have that exposure. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, I, you know, in hindsight, I learned my lesson and uh, and I moved on. And you moved on to Franke. I was first having actually a stint in uh, Novartis. So from PNG, I went to Novartis in Bern. I did pretty much the same that I did for, at PNG for an international level, European yeah. level. I did that for Novartis on a Swiss level for a Swiss market. Yeah. Um, and also at Novartis, less rigid, less let's say structured in terms of their their approach, mm -hmm. uh, but still very corporate. And uh, after a while, I really, I mean, just. It started to <laughs> knock again on my doors, you know, this might be not the right thing for you and, you know. Were there some people like telling you that it might not be the right thing or was it more a battle with yourself? It was, it was very clear that I wasn't, uh, um, that, uh, you know, one of my bosses told me, uh, you know, Roman, you have to watch out that you're not being overtaken by mediocre people. And I went back to my girlfriend at the time, my wife, and I told her, listen, this guy really thinks I'm, I'm great. Yeah. And she said, no, 
he just told you that you're sucking at work and the people who are far less talented than you are better. And he was, he was in hindsight, I have to give him credit for that. I mean, he was, he was right. Yeah, he was complimenting you out of there. <laughs> he, showed me, he showed me that there might be other yeah. opportunities, yes. And then you decided to go to this very entrepreneurial company, yeah. right? Franke. Yeah, right. So. I, um, I applied through a job advert for a position as um, assistant to CEO and group management of uh, Frankie. Frankie is an industrial group uh, led by uh, a very successful, very, very uh, high-profile entrepreneur in Switzerland, Michael Pieper. And I got the job and um, was hired for, uh, for uh, really like probably entrepreneurial thinking and my background. But I ended up in a very, very fascinating environment. I mean, being an, an executive assistant to a world-class entrepreneur, industrial billionaire and a really, really exciting you know, structure was fantastic. What were the main takeaways, like working with uh, Michael Pieper, like looking back at that time? What was, when you look back, what were the main things that, the main lessons he taught you? Well, I was really thriving. I mean, it was, I was really in my element. I mean, uh, you know, Monday morning he would show up with a pile of, of documents or little clippings he gave me to say, no, this is interesting. Why don't we look at that? You know, this is something I want you to look into and get back to me on. You know, why don't you take some travel and, you know, go find out about this and that. So the entrepreneurial, let's say, exposure I had is phenomenal. I think, uh, you know, I, I got to understand that I think in entrepreneurship it's as much about um, having the drive and the passion. Uh, uh, it is also a question of, you know, management and leadership and bringing that into an organization that you have to shape. And I think um, that was a key lesson for me. And then I think Michael Pieper has also a very strong industrial logic. So he exactly knows you know, he's a big industrial, he has an industrial vision. And I think from an entrepreneurial perspective, that's something that I really started to understand, that you have to start connecting the dots and, you know, thinking this through in terms of an industrial strategy. Yeah. So my decision making or my, my background was then pretty much complete. I, I realized that's, that's what I wanted to do all my life. Yeah. But being an entrepreneur, an executive assistant is only a short period and then you have to move on. Is there, is there any um, maybe story or anything you remember, any moment you had with him, like when you can take us back to a certain day or something that happened? When you think of that time at, uh, you probably were in Arburg, right? Right. In that office building you passed with the train, so. It's true, correct, correct. So. Uh, we started out really early in the morning, usually around six o'clock. He was already way wow. earlier than that. Okay. I was, he was in the office. That's already a lesson. Um, that's a lesson for sure. Wake up <laughs> early, you know, the early the bird. Early bird catches the Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so being early, and that's something that's stuck with me also as a lesson. I mean, you, you get a lot of stuff done in the morning. Um, no, but there are several interesting anecdotes and uh, just experiences. I mean, it's hard to pick just one, but it was definitely a very inspiring period for my life. And something I, you know, interestingly, uh, after I left the job, uh, Michael Pieper hired two assistants to do my job. Okay. So, you know, <laughs> previously I was more like a bottom performer yeah. in the corporate environment. All of a sudden I felt yeah. I thrive. And then, uh, you know, it was clear that I'd, I'd, I accomplished a lot also yeah. during those two, two years. And somehow he also liked it because then he sent you off to, do, to work for him in the U.S. Right. right? Yes. Okay. I was sent over to the U.S. to run a, um, a company in the U.S. 
a subsidiary that was based out of Seattle at the time. Um, I was 29, I was a very young you know, guy, ended up as a general manager uh, with, with a lot of responsibility. The company I was, I was sent to was a complete nightmare. Was completely. Well, but uh, it was owned by Fr Frankie. It was a subsidiary of Frankie, yes, exactly. Yeah. But uh, coming through a major acquisition, so the the company I was hired to 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 run uh, was coming from a major acquisition, and just got a huge account, huge new business with a major food service chain. So it all seemed very good until I arrived, and I knew I was in trouble. And how did you realize that you were in trouble? Well, you know, I mean, my first couple of days starting in the company, everybody was so chaotic and so stressed out because, you know, things wouldn't work. Uh, call center would explode. We had so much work. It was just crazy. And everybody realized we're not going to, you know, we're not going to do this. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and how, when, was, what happened then? then? We, um, after six months of being in a company, it was clear that uh, we wouldn't succeed. So we, my one of my first tasks was already to um, cut the organization, wow. move um, a smaller part of the organization over to Nashville, where we had another subsidiary, and basically make a lot of people redundant, fire people, establish new people. Very tough assignment. As a 29-year-old. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I had 60 people and I had to fire 50 people from, from wow. my organization. How did you handle that? Like, did you did you have nightmares or? It was stressful, yeah, very stressful, yeah, very stressful. And um, you know, I learned also the flip side of being an entrepreneur. The growth side is very nice, but then the other side of cleaning up shit and really like doing Especially what tough. Especially the shit that was not done by you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah you so inherited. But yeah. on the other hand, but somehow Michael Pieper thought you can handle it. Probably. Yeah, I think everybody did until, uh, let's say, that, con that transition was completed. Yeah. I ended up being in Nashville in a far larger organization, again, where I wasn't anymore the head chief, yeah. a lot more Indians, uh, a lot more chiefs. So after about two years in the States, the assignment was going to an end, and I had to decide what to do. And you decided to come back. We decided to come back. At that time, uh, we just had a, a one son that you know was born in the States. And we said, all right, you know, let's go back home. And at that time, I had a really nice deal to actually start something up. So I said, this is the time, now or never. OK, so uh, what do you mean by deal? So did they give you the possibility? To yeah, I had, a, I had a retrenchment. I, I was offered a, um, a retrenchment and spent, uh, I think, six or nine months um, on, a, on, a, on a paid leave. Wow. Yeah. Okay, nice. Yeah, that was, was also like to say somehow thank you. He yeah. Was not I mean, it was a very fair that. deal. No, it was okay. a very fair deal. Said, I said, listen, my 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 uh, job is done. Well. I've integrated this company into the new structure. Uh, you, we really don't need several chiefs to run that business anymore. It's mm -hmm. nicely integrated into an existing structure. Yeah. What should I do if I come back? What are the terms? And did you never? think that it might have been great to stay in yes, the US? Yes, of course. So there no, were some course. regrets? Definitely. I mean, uh, since I really loved the company, I loved, I had a lot of loyalty to Michael Pieper because I felt, you know, I wanted to work for him. And all of a sudden that came to an end. And um, yeah, being a GM with all the perks of, you know, having a personal assistant, you know, a company car and a $60 million profit and loss. That's quite nice. Yeah, especially at that age. Yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're people. top of the org chart, and yeah. the org chart is three pages long. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. But on the other but hand, also that's... also stressful. And, and probably you don't have that much entrepreneurial freedom, right? 
You do. Um, as a GM, I think in Frankie you do. You do have a lot of entrepreneurial freedom. But at the end of the day, you're an entrepreneurial manager. You're not an entrepreneur. Yeah. And I knew the difference from, you know, from, from my time at university when I spoke to entrepreneurs. Right. And I still knew that I'm not an entrepreneur. I have yeah. a lot of entrepreneurial freedom, but that's not what entrepreneurs are. Yeah. Entrepreneurs are you know, yet another dimension. Yeah. And that might be the reason when you left that you actually then took your time and said, hey, why not now come up with an idea that actually is enabling me to start my own company? Correct. And how did you come about? Like most of the people, they have the idea and don't start the company. You had the wish to start the company, but not an idea yet. How did you proceed in that idea hunting? It's very interesting, and, and I have to correct you on that. Uh, on the day of leaving the States, um, I was bringing all my potted plants from my balcony to a friend. And uh, Jason uh, lived across from me, and I brought the plants over in the, in the van. And while driving uh, and you know, getting the plants over, I asked Jason, so what type of business should I pursue now that I'm back in Europe? Mm -hmm. Is there anything you think I could do in terms of sustainability? I was looking for something clean tech, sustainability was something I felt would be cool. And he mentioned to me, and that's really true, the fact that he've written about or saw, he, he read about uh, urban farms and people growing food in the cities. Now that was 2010. Uh, it was still a big economic crisis in the state, you know, Detroit going down, Milwaukee, all these Motowns really suffering. It was a lot of real estate, industrial real estate was available. And I really, that's, that's where I got in touch with the idea. Okay. And I came back from the States and I just, the idea never left. Okay, so the idea was planted already. So totally planted. Not be, the idea was not hunted, the idea no. was planted. No, the idea was planted <laughs> and I often call myself kind of a, a, a carrier of the idea mm -hmm. because the idea would just not go away. Yeah. I think that happens when you come up with a really good idea, it needs to stick. It definitely needs to stick. I mean, but sometimes you wonder why this idea sticks and not something yeah. else. I mean, I was pursuing different ideas in parallel and people would think that this idea would vanish the best, you know, the fastest. Yeah. People wouldn't believe this idea is this actually idea. credible. Yeah. I mean, I told them about different things and people said, yeah, that sounds like a commercial nice idea. Mm -hmm. This sounds really exciting. Urban farming, what's that? Yeah. It was and a crazy idea. I didn't have the technology. I was researching different, um, that was during a startup weekend. I signed up to a startup weekend. And during the startup weekend, we found out that there's a guy who runs a website aquaponic.ch and mm -hmm. he, he loaded up all his research that he's done yeah. in the past couple of years on this issue. And he was from Badenswil. And was he was from Badenswil, yeah. Your co-founder. Right? He was my co-founder. Andreas and I started the company together. I called, literally, I called him up at home on a Saturday and said, yeah. your idea is really cool. I like the fact that we can grow fish and plants together, but it shouldn't be done in the countryside. We should bring it to the city. So, and he said, this is a, this is a weird thought. Why don't you meet me in my lab? Then you met Andreas. We met. We met and we, we hit it off very well. I think we were very complimentary in terms of you know him bringing in the technical experience, ex expertise, me bringing in the commercial and industrial experience. And um, yeah, then we set out. How, how did you come about? Like I heard a lot of people talking about it's great to have a complementary team, but in the end you also need a, a certain set of values where you agree. Did you do something like how did you talk about values and especially when you do something like urban farming then the values are even more important. Yeah. 
I think we're, on the values we were very much uh, aligned in terms of you know the ambition to do something for the for the world for cities and to bring something innovative to the market. I think in hindsight there were also some differences which we probably had in terms of value. I think Andreas as a technologist or a researcher was much more about his technology being validated. Yeah, and less for, about the cost. For you it was the cost. Less maybe for me a, a cost with a business. For me it was a cost with a business mm -hmm. or a business with a cost. And uh, for him it was more about uh, realizing his fulfillment in a technical application. I think that's, you meet that a lot between a technical and a commercial founder. I think uh, that probably was a, a different value that we had. But at the end of the day, you know, you set out, you start together, and the journey, the journey takes you. Yeah. And how much, just to be honest, how much is it really business? Is it not more like a nice marketing thing, like showing all these plants here in Basel? Is it really a business? Yeah. And if so, like, what's the perspective of this business? Yeah. No, it definitely is a business. I, I, I'm happy to say that it is a business because we're not the only ones doing it. There's massive investments going into the sector just now. There's a lot of competition in this field. When we started out, it was really a crazy idea between two guys and one guy happened to have a little experience on this in a lab. But right now, if you go to the US or China, there's uh, dozens of urban farming competitors. And I think it's more and more clear that food needs to be grown differently than in the past. And it has to do with the way we grow food from a resource point of view and how we bring it to people who actually consume the food. And, and why so, so? Why so? Yeah. Because of the supply chain inefficiencies. If you end up uh, um, harvesting a salad and uh, you have a waste of 30, 40, 50%, that is really not efficient. And you know the cost of bringing a product to market uh, is so high and then um, the environmental factors of how we grow food is so inefficient. So there's a lot of inefficiency in the food and ag world and I think urban agriculture will have a place. Maybe not for everything. I mean we will not grow rice or grow cattle in the city but it makes a lot of sense for you know the leafy greens, for the tomatoes, for the herbs, for the fresh stuff maybe for the honey and for, you know, for the mushrooms and definitely also for fish. So I think it's a, it's a great niche. I'm still excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> and please still fill us in a little bit. What's the business model? Like what, where do you actually earn money? Yeah. Where do you generate revenue? Yeah. So um, initially, I mean, the business model has changed over the years significantly. So first, the first business model was to say, we're actually just um, selling the farm and then other people will sell the tomatoes. Then we realized if we're just selling the technology to somebody else, somebody still has to operate those farms and that's a piece of know-how that most people don't have. So we then said, well, we do not sell the farm, we sell the tomato. So basically what we design engineer as our farm is an in-house profit center to then the, uh, the actual farm that sells the fish and the vegetables. So our major uh, revenue stream is fish and the vegetables being sold to our retail customers, wholesale customers in the city. And the second revenue stream is actually tourist events, hospitality. Wow. Yeah, we had a, a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. When we did this, I mean, yeah. here you have something like 200 tours uh, a year going through. Okay. Uh, in our second farm in The Hague, which is far larger, mm -hmm. we operate 
two full-time hosts who are taking people around the farm wow. from all over the world. Crazy. Very much. Uh, and, and they business. do that. Why? 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 why they are people. Coming to people want to want to see it. People want to see how it how, works how and what it does. Food is yeah. So yesterday we had a group of uh, Egyptian business people here. Uh, a lot of Chinese visiting, a lot of Europeans visiting, a lot of Americans visiting, a lot of kids visiting. School classes. Yeah, a lot. Exactly. Students. Yeah. And what's the output of this farm here in Basel? So here we're growing about five tons of vegetables and about one ton of fish, which again is a very small size, but mm -hmm. this was built as a pilot. Yeah. And in our second farm in The Hague, we're growing around 70 tons of production per annum. Wow, yeah. okay, so that's That's quite massive. significant. Yeah. yeah. And um, what do you plan to produce uh, in uh, Zurich, which you are thinking about to right. have the farm? Our third farm will be in Zurich, and Zurich will be a bit smaller than The Hague, uh, with around 50 tons of production. So 50 tons of leafy greens means, for example, that you're harvesting something like 700, 800 salads a day. Wow. Yeah. And how many people can you feed with that? Like if they would just right. eat salad and, and, yeah, exactly. and fish. We did the calculation. Uh, you're not going to only, of course, live on salad. <laughs> sure. but, but just uh, the theoretical. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, around 4,000 people. Wow. From the farming area. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And how, how do the products then actually get to the customer? Do you sell them through retail, through a Migros or Coop, or do you deliver that on the market? Or yeah. Like, what's your distribution angle? Yeah, we have several distribution angles. One is, uh, of course, mass market retail and wholesale. So we are delivering to the supermarket chains who are then distributing it out. We are delivering to wholesalers who take the product to uh, end customers. Uh, like food service entities, uh, but we would we we actually are more interested in building direct sales. So if you're coming to the farm, or if we deliver to your home, or if we can deliver to a restaurant directly, that's a much more interact interactive and interesting market for us. Do so you know, do you know if there are any restaurants down here that write on their on their menu? Um, salad by urban farmers. Oh yeah, yeah, sure. Really? No, absolutely. Okay, it's I'm part not of, from Basel. No, no, it's, it's part, part of, of the, the package. Concept. Absolutely. Okay. So what we give them, we call them gastro partners yeah so when we work with them we give them the recipe you know the the menu indications the stickers everything to make sure that they understand that they have a, a, a unique product yeah. and that their customers also realize that what they're eating has been grown in the city and how much can you charge additionally like how much is your salad here mm -hmm. how much more expensive is it than the mm -hmm. same salad which is grown somewhere else right we'd like to let's say benchmark against organic prices Okay. So we're not organic certified yet yeah. here in Switzerland, uh -huh. uh, but the benchmark for us is organic. So whatever is bio, we want to meet that. Yeah. And, and now talking about all this uh, doing good and saving the planet, uh, I know that you have an office in New York, so you have to fly there probably. What's your CO2 footprint and how do you deal with that? Do you compensate like with your urban farm? Or? Yeah, my pitch is always I should be compensating more the CO2 than I'm actually emit through my business. Yeah. Uh, but you're right, this is a, you know, it's a difficult question. I think if I were starting out to say where is my lowest footprint personally, I couldn't, I couldn't justify it. Uh, I do want to justify it with a business that I feel has significant environmental benefit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I get that question a lot, you know, what do you personally do to actually minimize your own footprint? Yeah. Do you have a car? I do have a car. What kind of car? I have a, a you know, a, a station wagon. I have two kids, you know. Okay, with a normal, uh, normal um, um, motor with yeah, normal yeah, um, yeah, gas. Yeah. 
Absolutely. No, no Tesla yet or something. No Tesla like yet. That. Tesla would be wonderful. <laughs> to sell you're more still, salads. Yeah, you're still, you're still a, <laughs> a, a startup salads. entrepreneur. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. yeah. After how many salads can you buy a, a exactly. Tesla? That's, that's, that's the math. interesting math. Exactly. Yeah. A couple thousand. Okay. So let's move on a little bit from the mission part to let's say the people part. I know um, or I heard and read about you um, that uh, you have a very strong opinion about hiring people. Um, you told me already the, the, the story from the US where you had to fire people. Um, so it's hard. So I, I see that you are struggling with getting the right talent. How did you develop a strategy that you now can say, hey, from point A uh, seven years ago to point B now, I really increase my hiring skills and mm -hmm. my hiring tactics? And mm -hmm. It's still a struggle for me. I mean, being an entrepreneur, I realize one of the key issues you have to get right is hiring and firing. So people, is it, I mean, at the end of the day, that's your key asset that you have. And I think personally, I had to learn a lot, and I did terrible mistakes. Like Can I, you give an example? I, I hired some of my best friends, uh -huh. and they're no longer my best friends. Okay, they're not hiring friends. Don't hire friends. Yeah. Very bad. Even if they have the greatest talent? Yes. So hiring friends, that's definitely a mistake I made. Then hiring, um, hiring, for me, for our business, Hiring was relatively easy at the beginning because we're a fascinating, new, innovative, you know, forward-looking company with a great new idea. And that attracts a, a, diff, a person, a, a set of people that want to be part of that. Right. Now, it's very interesting uh, to see after a couple of years where, uh, looking back, I can say that it's not always the right people that want to join a business that are the right people for your, for your business. Really? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, you have a lot of people who have great enthusiasm for what you do, but they might not have the exact skill set which you need for that job. And since uh, you're sometimes flattered that people send you the resume and say, hey, I want to work for you, um, you have to realize that's not always what you need. And how, how do you find that out? Like how, like if someone is really enthusiastic, so yeah. it's like easy to hire someone who goes like, oh, I want to be an urban farmer, yeah. I love your yeah, company yeah. and so on. It's really overwhelming. Yes. How do you then go a step backward and say, now we really have to find out, does this person fit? So let me tell you from the beginning, I would not trade skills over passion, for sure. If somebody is passionate, that goes still for me much Number better. One. Yes, absolutely. But sure. you still have to double check do the skills, does the skill set match? And what I also found is that a lot of people have aspirations to join businesses like this. But at the end of the day, businesses like this that generate maybe an environmental or social return also have a financial constraint. And a lot of people are not perfectly willing to buy into that. And then they realize the financial risks are far greater. And then, you know, they realize it's too much risk for them. Did you do things like uh, like shares for employees and stuff we do like that, that yes. to compensate? Absolutely. So okay. I I'm a, I'm a big proponent of uh, employee stock plans and you know have getting shares to to not only from investors and board and uh, founders of course but also to employees. Uh, very interestingly in Switzerland that's not a very relatively know. known concept. Yeah, I know, but it should be. And 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 how did you come about to implement it? Like when you said. Um, 
we could do shares for employees. What did you do? Did you call your lawyer or how did you call I asked around my colleagues, my other uh, entrepreneur colleagues, and I asked, can you send me your programs? And nobody was able to answer me. I got like three or four programs later that I said, okay, these are ones I can look at. Mm -hmm. But it was very interesting. Most of my colleagues said, we got our investors, we got our, you know, our founders. Why yeah. should we divvy out shares to, to employees? Yeah. And uh, I, was very, I was very clear that I wanted to do that. Um, now, I also learned a lot about that. <laughs> I mean, just because you give somebody shares does not mean that they're performing any better. So... What does it mean? Like it means that at the end of the day, you have to carefully calibrate who are you invent, incentivizing with shares and who are you employing for a certain skill set and maybe also a certain period. Because startups needs change so much, I think it's very dangerous to overpromise. So I overpromised. Yeah. A lot and of then times. Then people it, are disappointed. Yeah, it's disappointing. Yeah. It's disappointing for me as well. Uh -huh. Like I didn't want to sell them into something, but then but either then they felt yeah sold in. Yes. And how did you handle that situation when someone came up to you and said, "Hey, Roman, you said we're gonna build this farm, but we haven't." So exactly. Far. How did what did you do then? Like, did you excuse yourself or? I think people realize that taking on responsibility is also a lot about their responsibility. So I, no, I never had the conversation about why I didn't do something for them. But I do realize that people had sometimes different expectations, what they were able to do or what they would want to accomplish at urban farmers. And it's a, it, I think as an entrepreneur, um, and me, you know, loving people in general, that's hard when you realize, yeah, it's not, it's not always what you can wish for. Are there any major differences between regular investment money and social investments? Yes. What are your main differences? Maybe there are social entrepreneurs out there who say, hey, I want to start a social, a social thing. Like I have my coding academy for refugees, right. which is a yep. social. Um, I have tried to fundraise, which is kind of hard or yeah, different. Very hard. What are your experiences? You are now like for seven years in that industry. Yep. You have gone to summits and stuff. Yeah. Yep. What's the main difference? Overall, I'm quite uh, disappointed about, let's say, uh, social investments in general. I think a lot of people that are looking for social investors want to have the chicken and the egg. They want the best financial performance plus the environmental and social benefits. And in most businesses, that's just not possible. Yeah. Uh, you have a very small group of people that are actually investing in social businesses, but they're coming more from the philanthropic side. So they're more able to give you the money for reasons of your social impact, but they think that the economic mechanism you have is quite good to support the impact. Okay. Which I think is the exactly is a great way to support impact if yeah. you have a sustainable business that's, you know, impact. So, but there's few people that are like that. Most people come from the for profit side and they're not willing to sacrifice the profit the, and the risk. Yeah. So they oh, want to have mm -hmm. low risk, high return and environmental impact. And that's just in my mind, uh, uh, a conversation which you cannot, you cannot deliver. And for someone uh, who, who starts their social, and, uh, um, social, social venture, um, are there any 
things you can recommend where to go to to find the right people who are actually willing to sacrifice? Are there any platforms? Any yeah, I mean, uh, I started out as a, as a you know as a fellow from the uh, Impact Hub network. Uh, I'm not sure whether you also yeah. have an Impact Bar Hub nine in Bern, right? Yeah, right. And I must say that's a really good network to start because a lot of like-minded social entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs that want to do you know good investments or good good businesses. And I think that's uh, that's also a nucleus where you end up finding uh, some of the people. Some, I say some because. As I said before, the impact community is the ones that label themselves impact are not necessarily impact investors, and the ones that are are harder to find. So they wouldn't mingle around an impact hub. Where do you find them? Interestingly, they called me more than I called them. So, so you I have got to expose yourself. You have to like expose, with a, yeah, exactly. With a farm like that, you doing tours. To, yeah, exactly. Maybe it, someone is part of it. Absolutely. It could be your customer. It could be your. Um, it could be a business partner of yours. It could be an industrial group that leads you to um, an investment that they do on a on a on a with an impact in mind. I think the impact investors, they don't they don't carry that. You know, like venture capitalists would send your application. Right. Send us your business plan. They're also not very sophisticated in their structure, so they have, you know, they don't have a team that screens the business for them. They in invest a lot on their personal gut feel. Where do they have their money from? So most of our investors are family investors, so uh, family wealth that's been accumulated over several generations. Mm -hmm. And then they have a portfolio strategy where they have a clear philanthropic arm. They have a for-profit arm, and within those two sides, they find a little space that they call impact, and that's where they do investments such as ours. Okay, it takes time, and it takes a lot of patience, and it's a little bit like growing salad, right? <laughs> <laughs> These grow quite fast. They grow about faster four weeks. than the company. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. but yeah, you are doing this like now for a long time. You are uh, starting your third farm in uh, fall. You will open it in Zurich, mm. right? Yeah, I hope it will. And, um, but still, it's a, it's a long journey. How do you keep yourself motivated to keep yeah. on going? Yeah, I, I mean, to be honest, it, this is a tough question for me. Um, but I think it's easier said than done, you know, we're going to do this for 20 years. And uh, when I started out, I, you know, I came from a commercial background. I was moved to moving right. things very, very fast. And kind of, you know, had these two-year cycles of, you know, going somewhere and then you know going to the next place and all of a sudden this is my longest job I ever had <laughs> I didn't want to create a job for myself but yeah. now I'm, I'm six seven years in this business and previously I had two years assignments yeah so for me this feels like like wow yeah and and you can't leave and right? I cannot leave yeah I have no way of leaving I yeah. I this is one of my frustrations yeah I um, I announced the fact that I would want to have a successor about a year ago already, and it was received in, in, um, with, with really mixed results. I mean, employees were very, very uh, afraid that I didn't want to, I didn't believe in the business anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's actually the sign, right? Yeah, that was the sign I never wanted to give. I yeah. just said, for me personally, I might think that a succession strategy would be helpful. I really phrased it yeah. really carefully, yeah. and people said, what do you mean? Yeah. Are you not believing? <laughs> Are you not? Yeah. Um, so it's a big, it's it's a it's a it's a concern I have, 
and I and I don't have an answer for it other than what most people, you know, what the theory tells you, which is sell your business. Can could you sell it? I could. The question is to whom and for what price. Yeah, and that and would be hard probably to give it in the right hands to, yes. because it's still such a. It's fragile. Yeah, it's yeah, it's fragile. fragile, and you know, people, I mean, associate still the business with me. Right. So for me, it's too small yet. I mean, we have about 17 employees right now across the three farms and, mm -hmm. you know, the developments. And, uh, and it's very centric to me yet. And, um, and Andreas left, right? Andreas left last year. And was that a reason that he said, like, now I'm here seven years, I want to move no. on? Or? No, we had a fallout. We had, we, we had to go different ways. Um, it was no longer a productive um, relationship. Can you, are you open to share? Sure, I mean, more? you know, uh, Andreas and I, we were really close, good friends. I think we started the business out in the best intentions and I think we were really a great team. I mean, everybody told us so. Yeah. Uh, but over, over a couple of years, it was clear that, you know, where I would want to make significant professional improvements for the business. I think for him being a technologist, meant that he wanted to start new technical explorations and was happy to have solutions that were maybe not fully commercializable okay because he had you know he was an r d Te techie yeah. person yeah and for me that was getting more and more dangerous yeah. because we already spent so much money and we spent so much resources building something which had to work but was he never scared that you can't pay the salaries like was not in his mind no. He's that, a no. That was not of his concern. That was your job. That was my job, okay. and of course he uh, he he looked at the results. But he was never about um, creating a business. He was about, as I said before, Putting about technology. He needed a vessel for his technology, right? And that's perfect. I mean, you want to have that in the business because yeah. you want to have that technological. Yeah, you need that drive. But um, anyways, that, that was one element of where we. We had clear different views. And then I think if the company had grown um, a little faster, then there is role for everybody to be happy. Right, right. If the company does not grow as fast as anybody wanted to, and then the departments stay relatively small, mm -hmm. including R&D, then you have to sometimes make really tough decisions and it becomes a little bit of a battle, yeah. which opinion wins. Uh, so I would say, you know, it's unfortunate on the one hand. On the other hand, I am very much relieved since it's gone because I feel like I can, I, just, I can just do whatever I think is right. Yeah. I don't have to like discuss it from a yeah. very different angle all the time. And, and how did you solve it? Like when a founder leaves, normally they have quite a stake in the company. Yeah. Did he just keep it or were you able to we're, buy him We're out in the or? middle of that conversation. Okay. Yeah, we're in the middle of, converse, of that conversation. Frankly, um, it's a tough conversation. We didn't really, um, I think in hindsight, we could have solved it better. Um, uh, I mean, you can clearly set things up the way you, um, you know, structure these shareholder agreements right. to say, okay, well, if somebody leaves, what happens? Yeah. And we left that fairly open. So now he leaves with a big chunk of shares. Um, our industry and our current investors say that's fine, let him go, let him keep him. I yeah. say no, we have to do something about this because it's significant. Yeah. And future investors will ask, 
who's in the company and who's incentivized right, again. Right. And at you least rather have another CTO and give him part exactly. of the shares. Exactly. Yeah. I have to give that back. And yeah. I, I would say I'm open for that as well. If I found a successor, yeah. it was very clear for me, I would give a lot of my shares back to that person. Yeah. So that person could be yeah. as incentivized as I am. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, we're in the conversation about that and it's, you know. But your recommendation would be solve it. Solve it at the early. Beginning, That's a key it. lesson. And structure it in a way that yeah. everybody can agree on. But see, the problem is like with young people and starting companies, if they are so excited about it, absolutely, you don't nobody want to think of that. You don't want to. It's think like of with that. marriages. I mean, yeah. you know, you think don't think of separation. <laughs> yeah. Of right. divorce. Yeah. So that's a big, I think, um, element of sophistication, which is relatively uh, not really established in Switzerland. Yeah. You know how you start companies and how you make them successful um, with these type of um, learnings. That's yeah. not, not a lot of people talk about that. Uh -huh. But it just happens and I think it would be great and I thank you that you are talking about it. I think it's so important to share that. It's important to share failure, it's important to share things like uh, founders team splitting up yep. because in every second company the founders split oh, up. Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. it's just oh, yeah. normal. And, and it is normal and maybe it should also be uh, part of the, of the training that you go through and say, okay. How do you deal with ex that? Yeah, and how do you make sure you have a strategy because it's going to happen? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe the last question um, to your business, to urban farmers. Um, how long time do you give yourself? Is there <laughs> like a drop where you say, <laughs> Hey, at that point, we need at least 10 farms. You see me laughing. Yeah. I, I make these plans all the time. Yeah, but then it's hard to fulfill. And then they, there's Moving difference. Moving targets. Exactly. And yeah. at the end of the day, I think as a founder, you're driven by this idea. And that's, that really is the fun part about the early stage. You're defined so much about how you want to put this in place. And then there comes a second phase where things start to maybe work out, maybe not. Yeah. For those lucky enough where it fails completely, they can only move say on. it moved, move yeah. on. Yeah. There's no point in that. There's no other alternative. Yeah. For those that have a tremendous success, yeah. it's fantastic. They say that, uh, sell, sell the company. At sell the, the company, buy the yacht. New. Yeah, or move, do something new. Oh, do something new, company. fantastic. Yeah. For people like me, yeah. no, seven years of relative success, but still a long way to go into a commercial business case that actually you have the luxury to say I live off my dividends yeah. or I can sell the business is, uh, is a tough spot. And on the other hand, I was, I was fortunate enough to be with people like Michael People who ran businesses for a hundred, you know, the family ran the business for a hundred years. Yeah. So what am I? I'm yeah. running a business for seven, seven years. years. Yeah. Yeah. I should stick through yeah. And maybe and pass it on, on to, to my son. sons. Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so my sons will be coming here over and know yeah. one of my sons, the yeah. four-year-old, wants to, you know, we'll tend the, the fish. fishes. Yeah. It's all about the fish. <laughs> and the other guy is more for the plants. <laughs> so it's, you know, that's, that's an interesting nice thought. That's yeah. right? That, that keeps like, you engaged when the sons <laughs> come here to do gardening. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. No, but to be honest, I think you need to have a strategy. But as a founder, it also, you need to remind yourself, again, why you started the business and and the reasons for staying, they change. And I think right now I'm all about making sure that urban farmers can grow to a level where it becomes sustainable for a commercial point of view 
where we have a structure in place and you know build a company and building a company just takes a lot longer than most entrepreneurs imagine it's a marathon not a sprint I have this one friend of mine told me it takes a long time for instant success and I think in schools and that's the dangerous about entrepreneurship education uh, the, and the success stories we hear from the US that we think it's so fast. Everything yeah. is so instant. It's just the tip of the iceberg that is it's, instant. It's the zero, zero point yeah. nothing, nothing. But I mean, the, it's really... The big, large group is yeah, really yeah, the, yeah, 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 yeah. the sweat I've, and the hard work. Uh, and, and being in the game already for a, a number of years with one business, I f truly feel it's a, it's a fantastic achievement. Right. So I'm, yeah. you know... But that's more actually your past. So it's like when you read media, it's always about the, the end goal, like selling the company yeah. or being successful. Yeah. But maybe we should more focus on the past, what we learned yeah. and the experience we gathered. Yes. And that's actually what you did. And, and, and when you look at that time, the only reason not to stop doing it is when you say, I can't learn anything exactly. anymore. Exactly. As long as you can learn, it makes perfectly sense. Exactly. And actually to put you back in a situation where you can learn as much as you already did, right. it's super hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you will be probably really disappointed if you would leave now, go and start something new, because then you will start again at the beginning, and if you would have the same learnings, that's Yeah, I agree question. with you. I agree with you. Maybe now taking it to a more personal perspective, like we, like I always try to talk to people about their personal life and mm -hmm. how they are able to like your son we talked about your son two sons and they were born like the moment you started urban farmers yes. or right before right so you had three kids how how did you handle like having kids at home having urban farmers hiring these people how did you combine personal and, and family life yeah it is this is really a um Quite a juggle. I feel, I really look, looking back, it's a very intense period for my life, both professionally and personally. Um, luckily, I have a great wife. I would really say having a great partner at home is really a key ingredient for your entrepreneurial success. I really mean that. I yeah. mean, you know, kudos to Martina and all the other entrepreneurial wives, wives. that have to stick out. And it's tough. What's her background? She's also, uh, she, we met at the university at Harske, so we're, um, I mean, she understands a lot of what I'm going through, and she's a great sparring partner. But, but she is not somehow entrepreneurial. No, in she her. works in a, in a major corporation in the bank, but also on the, on the philanthropic impact side. So she shares, I think, the, the passion for impact. Mm -hmm. But what I wanted to say is, um, it's difficult to separate professional and private life when you're an entrepreneur you bring it home. And, um, and I think it, you, it, this is also part of growing up, probably as an entrepreneur, to realize you have to put these walls in place. Yeah. Like I remember when my sons were, in, uh, were still small and I was you know, taking them to the playground, I would look up stuff Emails. and I was still phoning and then, yeah, nice, you're on the, you know, on the, and you're not there. Yeah. And, um, I have these deja vus where I realized I was not, not enough there mentally. Maybe physically I was, but mentally yeah. I wasn't. And, um, and, and keeping a healthy family life, keeping a healthy, healthy relationship with an entrepreneurial kid, as you said, yeah. is very difficult. Um, and something I, I have to say, I, you know, I did certain risks, which luckily my, my environment was very supportive. Um, that was? 
I mean, just, you know, I mean, I was able to do what I was able to do. I, when, when I traveled to the uh, U.S. for two weeks or now, you know, in summer I go to China or I stayed up at the subsidiary in Brazil or now I just came back for three days from The Hague. I mean, I travel like 30, 40, 50 percent. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's, that's my wife handles her job and, and much of the family life. Yeah. But when I'm there, I'm trying to be more active now there also from a mental point of view. I really like shutting. I have since I shut down my email on my on my cell phone. It, you do that? Yes. No. No, okay. I don't have email anymore on my cell phone. I deleted my account. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when you I would home, recommend that to every dad. Yes. Or switch off if you have it on your phone. Switch off the phone. Switch off is very hard. At least I don't even have it on there. Then there's no temptation. Okay. I take my phone off because I can't even look it up. Okay. Yeah, so that would be uh, having like uh, cigarettes in the pocket and not yeah, smoking them. Exactly. Yeah. So you have so to get rid of it. Of the cigarettes. Very radical. Throw away the yeah, cigarettes. Yeah, exactly. And then again, keeping an eye on your health is also very important. I had to also learn some How lessons. How do you do there. that? I was really neglecting my health for a long time. I have to be honest. And you—that means you ate that means shitty stuff, even <laughs> though you are. Uh, <laughs> no, no, the eating <laughs> part I still farmer. like. I mean, uh, okay. <laughs> no, but um, sports one. Recreation, time for yourself. Um, it just—it's very consuming, and I think you have to um, manage it very actively. And I—I I, I think the, um, um, you can do it only for a certain while when you realize there is a trade-off between you know sleeping healthily, uh, you know having a healthy lifestyle, doing enough exercise and sports, and your work. Mm -hmm. I felt I could go and go go, and then I realized now I'm 38. It, probably it doesn't go any better if I work more or harder. So taking breaks and really, you know, enjoying yourself a little bit more than just rushing. So I learn, I, 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 there I'm still learning. I think I'm still in the process of figuring out how I do this. But I, I heard that you did a sabbatical as I did. a startup entrepreneur. I did. So that felt kind of weird when yeah, I heard that. Yeah, a very selfish so, sabbatical. Yeah, I told everybody, awesome. including my wife and my kids, yeah. I went for six weeks on a world trip and I, I said I had to do this. Um, At what level was that? Like what that stage was, of your company? That uh, was three years ago. The company was three years old. And I said, wow. listen, yeah. How did investors and employees and everybody react? Did they appreciate it? Were they able to handle it or were they like really stubborn about it and confused? Uh, I would say a lot of people were confused about it. And a lot of people were uh, not very uh, supportive about you know, me wanting to leave. Yeah. Because there's always work and always people think that you know, it should be done. Um, so I had to just push it through. It was a relatively selfish idea. Uh, but I have to say, in hindsight, I'm still glad I did it because it really brought me to a level of reflection and I can, I can honestly say I, it was really healthy for me. Um, next time I would do it with the family and take everybody along, but at that time that was not, um, was not possible. Um, because they were too small? Or? No, my wife was still working, of course, and then you know, she couldn't just leave for six weeks and the kids, the kids, you know, we're not ready for that type of trip. Do you do something like a daddy day or something? I do, yes, you I do. always did. I always have my daddy day. So Fridays or Friday afternoon right now I'm off. And uh, I got better at it. So at the beginning it was really not something I felt um, really... Um, I did it, I loved it because I wanted to be with my boys. But now I do it more consciously. Yeah. Yeah. Like deleting the email on your phone. 
I do, I, yeah, exactly. And then I really am really with the boys and I love it. It's great, yeah. Friday afternoon. Are there any other life hacks you could share, like for young entrepreneurs who maybe sleep under their desk or <laughs> just yeah. eat rice and no fruit anymore <laughs> or whatever? Exactly. Like, are there any things that you say, hey, I learned that and it really helped me, like some people do yoga or whatever? Yeah, I mean, you know? again, staying healthy, um, taking care of friends. So not just only focusing on the business and on your, on your family, family. really still keeping, keeping an eye on friends old, new friends. That's such a great, precious thing in life, friends. And I used to also neglect that a lot for a, for a number of years. Yeah. I just wouldn't call back, or I would have no time to meet. And you lose friends. I lost friends. Mm -hmm. So, you know, staying together with friends, enjoying your friends. And, um, and then this, this, the other thing I discover also is um, when you're very busy, you don't really want to give back. So you're really focusing on what you have to do. But right. when you start actually looking at what other people need and helping other people, even if it's small things of you know, giving somebody a piece of advice or having somebody you know, help do something, that is very relieving. I find that very interesting. Gives back a lot of yeah, energy. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting. Yeah. That's the reason why you share today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's why I'm here. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's a great closing. Actually, yeah. like, thank you so much. Um, I think there are people who like to get in touch with urban farmers, but maybe also with you. What's the easiest way to get in touch with you? Well, people should write me. Just drop an email. Drop an email. I Which you read them. on your desktop. On my desktop, exactly. <laughs> Roman at urban farmers, and um, now people should should come to the farm. Is it the farm? Like, do you do tours? How can I do a tour here? Yeah, it's every. You can register online on all our farms. You can come online. There's tour guides who can take you through. We have events here. People, you know, make their corporate events here. So, I'm sure once in a while people get the opportunity to come. They should. Okay. Yeah. Great. I hope to be here soon. No, thank you very on much. On a tour. Super. All yeah. the best. Thanks. Thank you very much. Hope to see you again. Thank you. Thank you, Roman. Thanks. Thanks.